So I edited that video a little bit short. You can go check it out on the Bible Project's YouTube channel or their website at some point if you want. But uh, I wanted to play that because I liked the theme where we see over human history, right? We see something that we want. We desire it. We think it will make our lives better, make us happier. And then we take that thing, regardless of what God might say, and then it makes our lives worse. And sadly, sometimes it takes us, right, a decade or two to figure out what thing is causing this, right, grief and destruction in our own lives. It's, it's really a heartbreaking story, but obviously they ended with a little bit of hope there, right, that Jesus gave up his own desire. He laid down his life for his friends, right, that we could be saved through him. He was willing to fully obey the will of the Father and walked it out perfectly, all right? And uh, so, so the reason I'm bringing this up is that because you and I, we're really not usually looking for a God in our lives, right? Maybe at most, we're kind of looking for like a life coach, someone who maybe, maybe we pay, but maybe it'd be cool if it was God and he did it for free, where he could just spend some time thinking about how to make us happier, right? Where he could figure out how could I get the things that I think will make me happy, right? That's what we kind of want. We want someone to just help us figure out and problem solve how to optimize, right? I want to be happy, so you think about how I can get those things, right? That's kind of what, what we're usually looking for, uh, because really we want usually, this is, I mean, this is just human, right, history. This is our own hearts. Usually we just want to be in charge of our own lives, right? And we probably think it's even a little bit presumptuous of God to claim that he should be in charge of our lives, right? That, that, that's a little bit presumptuous of him. I mean, if you've gone on living your life just being like, no, I just, I kind of make my own decisions. Maybe I might invite some other people into those decisions once in a while, right? But in general, I kind of want to just be my own God, right? That's usually where our flesh is, where our bodies are, where we're trying to just do the things that we want to do. But I played that video because I wanted to make the point that you and I are really bad at being God. Like, we're horrible at it, all right? Like, we're really, really bad at being God, right? There, yes, the Bible admits there are things that we want, but those things that we want don't always bring about the joy and happiness and satisfaction that we think they will give us. And God, in his goodness, in his loving kindness, he often will set boundaries that may feel restrictive to us, right? But yet they're actually meant for our flourishing, they're actually meant for our joy and our blessing, that we would find in him the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, right? That's what God is desiring for us. And so, so I want to kind of make that point that you and I, we're actually not great at being God. And I mean, if you don't believe me now, spend like a couple, maybe three decades trying it and you'll agree eventually that it doesn't work out that well. And so we're going to find out today that God is the only God. He's really the only one. He's the only legitimate choice to put in the box, in the responsibility, the role of, the authority of God. And now, the Bible fully acknowledges and admits that you and I have complete free will to choose other things to be God. They're just really poor choices, all right? Like, we can place all sorts of other things in our lives in priority above Him, and frequently we do. Right? Frequently, humanity does, but those things are not authentically powerful or have authority or have the ability to save us or to help us in any real capacity. Right? They aren't good at being God. And so, so 
we're at the point in the story of Exodus, right, where God has rescued and redeemed his people, right? He's taken them out into the wilderness. He's provided for their needs, food and water, these different things. And he takes them to Mount Sinai. And a couple of weeks ago, Joe preached about this mountain that was just like shaking. The whole thing was shaking, right? There's smoke, there's fire. The people are just like, oh my goodness, what did we get ourselves into, right? And and it's at this moment where God, right, gives the Ten Commandments. All right, don't worry, there won't be a quiz. All right, so calm down. Here we go. All right. Uh, but, but what's interesting is he starts the Ten Commandments with this idea that, hey, just so you know, I'm God. And really, if we can't get past that first one, there's almost no point in reading the rest, right? Like, because what's the point? Like, what are we even looking for in the rest of the commandments if we're not willing to admit that he's God, right? The, the most that we could get out from them is just, you know, maybe I'll read them and I'll be happy when conveniently God got it right and he agreed with me. Right? Or I'd just be like, well, that's too bad, God. You, you were wrong on that one. You, know, you should have agreed with me on that one as well. Right? So like, if we're not willing to make the, the step of faith that God is God and has authority to even make commands, those other commandments are, are useless at changing our hearts. They're useless at pointing out whether or not something is, in fact, good or evil in our lives. If we're, if we're not willing to admit that he actually has authority to say that some things are good and some things are evil. And we fall back into the routine of our parents, Adam and Eve, right? And, and we want to define good and evil for ourselves, right? And so, so this is kind of interesting, right? That, that who is the one who gets to define good and evil, right? And, and, and life can sometimes seem convenient if God maybe just didn't exist and you and I just got to do things our own way. But that's a very dangerous, dangerous way to live. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20. I've got it up on the screen. You can follow along. I'll be bouncing back and forth between the New Living Translation and the English Standard uh, Version of the Bible. Uh, So I've got a little bit of both in here today. So here we go. All right. Smoking, rumbling mountain. God speaks. Bam. All right. God gave the people all these instructions. Verse 2. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. All right, I know the rumbling mountains scared him. All right, so I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. And so God starts the Ten Commandments reminding them that it's not these commandments that placed them in the family and people of God. God actually chose them and loved them before they kept any of these commandments. These aren't rules to keep in order to appease God and gain his approval. He already has bestowed his love on his people. All right, these commands are for people that are already in the family of God. So this isn't the means through which you become a member of the family. This is just like house rules. All right, these are house rules if you're in the family of God. All right, so we're not keeping these commands, right, in order to gain God's approval or become a part of his group, right, become one of his kids. Because, right, he already told the Israelites, he's like, listen, it wasn't because you're this great nation that I chose you. It's because I loved you, that I called you out, all right, that I rescued you and redeemed you from slavery, all right? So it had nothing to do with their ability to keep these rules, and as you'll find out, They do a a horrible job, a horrible, terrible and horrible combined, bam, job at keeping these commandments, okay? Like, it's just not great, not great. So so number one, here we go, verse three, he says, you must not have any other God but me. 
right? You must not have any other God but me. So I'm the one who rescued you. I am the Lord your God, and you must not have any other God except me, right? So God is, is saying, listen, it's, it's me and that's it. There aren't other options for you. This isn't the way that you should live. And, and I want to suggest that, uh, that this isn't actually just like this statement of neutrality. It's not just like some box that you would check on your driver's license of like, okay, God will be my only God. It's not just you updating your Facebook status, you know, under religion and just saying God is my God, right? Like God's actually wanting us to go more than just saying that he's God. He actually wants to be like God of all of our lives, right? It actually goes far beyond just this command. Instead of just being able to say like, yeah, okay, there's no other God. God actually wants us to love him. God wants us to love him, right? When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? Right? He said it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So God's not just looking to be your friend. God's not just looking to right, be in this God box that you have him in, but then have no relationship or interaction with him. God wants to love you and be loved by you. All right? So it's, it's far more than just this. So when it's stated in the negative, it's kind of like, okay, no other God's. But when it's stated in the positive, right, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's, it goes so far beyond that. And in fact, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he expected the same kind of priority. He said that we cannot love mother or father more than him. That's my Mother's Day reference for 2018. Did you enjoy it? All right. So you can't love mom more than God. But we love you, moms. We love you. Just not more than God. All right, and Jesus even said this in Matthew chapter six. I've got this verse on the screen. He says, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right, that's what Jesus said. We can't do it. And you know what's crazy is like, we actually want to doubt Jesus a lot of the time there and be like, well, maybe I could though, Jesus. I'm not trying to diminish you. I just also like these other things that I think are pretty good and I don't want to serve. And maybe you were wrong this time, right? Like maybe I can do these things. And that's what we like to think, right, when we happen to serve other gods. And just so you're aware, money is also a horrible god, right? It's not one that you want to serve. It can't meet your needs. So what God is looking for here is actually loyalty, God's looking for faithfulness, right? God desires that, right, we would be with him and he would be with us, and it's, it's this forever thing. And like I said earlier, this is kind of, right, presumptuous to some of us that we think, like, how, how could God expect that? Like, I'm not sure I'm ready for that kind of commitment, right? We might not like the idea. We might not be ready for uh, God to be God of every area of our lives, Right? And we might not even like the idea that God expects this kind of loyalty. Yet what's interesting is the very thing that our society sometimes might find unreasonable, that God would dare, right, want to be God in everyone's life and to set boundaries for us, is the same exact thing that we celebrate. Right? That, that we celebrate this, this sort of faithfulness and commitment whenever we go to a wedding. Right, when we see two people that are in love with each other, that want to spend forever together, right, everyone's there celebrating. 
And at a wedding, there are promises of commitments and faithfulness and loyalty, right? It's this beautiful thing to be celebrated. And so, so when we think about God expecting this loyalty from us or faithfulness from us, we're kind of like, ooh, like, I didn't know I was getting involved in this. But what God's looking for is relationship, and those things are not presumptuous when it's a loving relationship, right? People celebrate that sort of beautiful commitment and faithfulness to another person, right? The only person that grieves at a wedding is sometimes like the selfish best man who is like sad that his friend is losing these freedoms, right? But everyone else is celebrating, right? Everyone, even, the, even the guy getting married is like, this is amazing, this is incredible, right? They're more than happy to make proclamations of love and faithfulness. So we do celebrate this sort of thing even in our own society. And this is the exact kind of commitment that God is looking for. I realize you might not be ready to say yes to like God's proposal. Like sure, he didn't get down on his knee, but he like publicly displayed his love for you and asked for you to be with him and follow him forever. And so, like, you've got to figure out in your own life, like, okay, am I ready to say yes to that? Right? That's, that's kind of, like, there's some pressure there. Right? That's like, you know, being at the, the sports arena and it's on, on the big screen for everyone to see and Jesus is saying, hey, I love you. And then, like, but if you stand there and you're just like this, like, I, 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 maybe just, like, could, give me a year, Jesus. Like, if you did that, right, at the sports game, is that what they, they call them? All right, the sports game and you're on the big screen, Right, like, and, and suddenly the girl is just kind of like, oh, please, please, just not yet, not yet. Like everyone in the arena would know there's a problem, right? Like they're not going to be happy about that. They're going to feel so bad for the guy who's down on his knee proposing in front of everybody, and they know that their relationship isn't ready for that sort of commitment. But that's the kind of commitment that God is looking for you and I to have with him. In fact, you might remember a number of months ago, Joe's dad, Eric Carter, preached a sermon from the beginning of the book of Hosea, which is this interesting Old Testament book about this prophet who God then tells, he says, listen, Hosea, I've, I've got the perfect woman for you. Go out and marry this prostitute named Gomer, right, which is this interesting thing. And God says that this is actually going to be this prophetic parable of the way the people of Israel treat God in their relationship. Right, that God actually knows that this woman is going to be cheating on Hosea. And he says, this is exactly the way the people of Israel treat me. That they commit adultery against me over and over as they worship other gods. All right, and so, so one of the things God ends up saying is, sure enough, this lady right, has children with, with other men. Right? She ends up leaving him again, gets herself tied up into the, the sex trade again. And, and in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, right, as you might be thinking like, Hosea doesn't deserve this. Like, come on, Hosea. But this is what the Lord said. The Lord said to me, go again and, and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. All right, so God says, listen, Hosea, go back and find your wife. I know you don't know where she's been for a number of weeks, right? And she's right out caught up in the sex trade and it's horrible, but he's like, go find your wife and love her the same way that I love my people, even though they repeatedly commit adultery against me. And so verse two, Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. All right, so he has to buy his own wife back 
from the sex market, okay? And verse three, and he said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You must not, shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so I will also be to you. Right, so Hosea makes this commitment to his wife, Gomer, and he requests that she would likewise be faithful to him. Right? And God is saying this is exactly how his people are with him. But nonetheless, even though you and I rebel and are unfaithful to God, God still pursues us lovingly and is even willing to pay the price for us to get out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. Right? And he invites us into a relationship of faithfulness. And that is what God desires. Let's see. So God's request is reasonable. Let's go to verse 4 back in Exodus 20. He says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind of image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And so check this out, right? Okay, so the heavens, right, the sky, the earth, to see, are these good things or are these bad things? These are, these are good things. Remember the video, like when God made this world, it was good, it was very good when he made it. But these things are bad when they're placed out of correct priority. That if we put these things before God, all right, like they are horrible at being gods. Nature is not good at being God. What's interesting is nature does describe to a capacity what God is like. Right? That, that, that we can understand a little bit of what he's like, and he wants us to enjoy it. Here's, here's a verse, 1 Timothy 6, which actually hits two points that I've made so far, so a little bit of a callback here. It says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, right? not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. All right, once again, money is a bad God. Like, it's going to be so unreliable, okay? Uh, he says, their trust should be in God. All right, so don't trust in your riches. If you have them, trust in God. Okay, and then check this out. Who richly gives us all things we need, right, for our enjoyment. That the creation that God has made is this good world that he wants us to enjoy. Right, that as we walk through creation, as we, right, paddle the lake or hike the mountains, right, we, God wants us to enjoy these wonderful things that he's given us. But those things in and of themselves, although they might give us a, a glimpse of what God is like, they are insufficient to be our God. They are also insufficient to tell us everything that God wants us to know about him, right? Contained within those things, there's a little bit about him, but, but it's not sufficient to communicate the gospel about how Jesus loves us, how he died for us, how he invites us to be forgiven and free from sin, right? Nature can't communicate that. In fact, it turns out that it's you and I, the followers of Jesus, who God gives that mission to declare that good news to this world, right? That Jesus loves them, that we are to be the light of the world, right? As we would proclaim this good news to others, right? That God doesn't want to count the sins of people against them anymore, that he's paid the penalty for it, right? Nature is insufficient to communicate that. Nature isn't a good God to be worshipped, and it does give us a glimpse of who God is. Check this out in Psalm chapter 8. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Right? So like, just like, you know, the psalmist a couple thousand years ago, like looking at the sky and he's thinking like, I am so small. Like God made all of these things. Like why does God even bother with us? Like I feel so insignificant. But the crazy thing is that although you and I are small in this universe, we are not insignificant to our creator. Right? He made us and he loves us and he knows us fully. Verse five, he says, yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Right, that when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them responsibility over the world. Yes, to have dominion over it, not to abuse it, but to bring about its flourishing. Right, that that he's placed that all under their own responsibility. Check this out, verse seven, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. All right, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. I wanna point out from this passage that like creation is supposed to remind us of God's goodness, right? That you and I are not God, that you and I did not make all of creation. But also, creation itself is lower than us. So like if I'm choosing to worship like the people did in ancient times, worship some statue from, carved from wood or rock or metal, or, or if I'm worshiping a creature, an animal, like it's kind of like why would you worship the thing that is lower than you, right? That is less than you. It doesn't make sense. It's not meant to be your God. That people sometimes they stay distant from the artist but enjoy the work that he created intending to draw them to himself. Right? Sometimes like people are fascinated with the beauty of this world and the life within it and we should be. But it's meant to draw us to the one who made it. That's what God intends it to do. It is, it is this wonderful gift for us to enjoy. Check out Romans chapter one. So this is Paul's writing. This is so cool. He says, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Some translations, instead of saying through everything that God has made, it says in everything that God has made that we can see some of his qualities. We can see, right, the artist behind the art. And what's so cool is that you and I live in a generation where we actually know more about the things that God has made. We've been able to look more deeply into the things that God has made than any other generation. In fact, I'm gonna stop right now and I wanna play this little video that I edited together this morning. Check it out, I think you guys got it. This is DNA in its classic double helix form, and it's from X-ray crystallography, so it's an accurate model of DNA. If we unwind the double helix and unzip the two strands, you see these things that look like teeth. Those are the letters of genetic code, the 25,000 genes you've got written in your DNA. This is what they typically talk about, the genetic code. This is what they're talking about. But I want to talk about a different aspect of DNA science, and that is the, the physical nature of DNA. And it's these two strands that run in opposite directions for reasons I can't go into right now, but they physically run in opposite directions, which creates 
a number of complications for your living cells, as you're about to see, most particularly when DNA is being copied. And so what I'm about to show you is an accurate representation of the actual DNA replication machine that's occurring right now inside your body, at least 2002 uh, biology. So DNA is entering the production line from the left-hand side, and it hits this collection, this miniature biochemical machines that are pulling apart the DNA strand and making an exact copy. So DNA comes in and hits this blue donut-shaped structure, and it's ripped apart into its two strands. One strand can be copied directly, and it can be seen spooling off down to the bottom there. But things aren't so simple for the other strand because it must be copied backwards. So it's thrown out repeatedly in these loops and copied one section at a time, creating two new DNA molecules. Now, you have billions of this machine right now whirring the right way inside you, copying your DNA with exquisite fidelity. It's an accurate representation, and it's pretty much at the correct speed for what is occurring inside you. But I've left out error correction and a bunch of other things. Um, this was work from a number of years ago. Thank you. This is work from a number of years ago, but what I want to show you next is updated science. It's updated technology. So again, we begin with DNA, and it's jiggling and wiggling there because of the surrounding soup of molecules, which I've stripped away so you can see something. DNA is about two nanometers across, which is really quite tiny. But in, a, in each one of your cells, each strand of DNA is about 30 to 40 million nanometers long. So to keep the DNA organized, to regulate access to the genetic code, it's wrapped around these purple proteins. I've labeled them purple here. It's packaged up and bundled up. All of this field of view is a single strand of DNA. This huge package of DNA is called a chromosome. And we'll come back to chromosomes in a minute. We're pulling out, we're zooming out, out through a nuclear pore, which is sort of the gateway to this compartment that holds all the DNA called the nucleus. All of this field of view is about a semester's worth of biology. Now, I've got seven minutes, so we're not going to be able to do that today. No, I'm being told no. Um, this is the way a living cell looks down a live light microscope, and it's been filmed under time lapse, which is why you can see it moving. The nuclear envelope breaks down. These sausage-shaped things are the chromosomes, and we'll focus on them. They go through this very striking motion that is focused on these little red spots. When the cell feels it's ready to go, it rips apart the chromosome. One set of DNA goes to one side, the other side gets the other set of DNA, identical copies of DNA, and then the cell splits down the middle. And again, you have billions of cells undergoing this process right now inside of you. Now we're going to rewind and just focus on the chromosomes and look at its structure and describe it. So again, here we are at that equator moment. The chromosomes line up, and if we isolate just one chromosome, we're going to pull it out and have a look at its structure. So this is one of the biggest molecular structures that you have, in, at least as far as we've discovered so far, inside of us. So this is a single chromosome, and you have two strands of DNA in each chromosome. One is bundled up into one sausage. The other strand uh, is bundled up into the other sausage. These things that look like whiskers that are sticking out from either side are the dynamic scaffolding of the cell. Um, they're called microtubules, but names not so important. But what we're going to focus on is this red region. I've labeled it red here. And it's the interface between the dynamic scaffolding and the chromosomes. It is obviously central to the movement of the chromosomes, but we have no idea really, as to how it's achieving that movement. We've been studying this thing called the kinetochore for over 100 years with intense study, and we're still just beginning to discover what it's all about. It is made up of about 200 different types of proteins, thousands of proteins in total. It is a signal broadcasting system. It broadcasts through chemical signals, telling the rest of the cell, 
when it's ready, when, when it feels that everything is aligned and ready to go of the, for the separation of the chromosomes, it is able to couple onto the growing and shrinking microtubules. It's transiently, it's, it's, it's involved with the growing of the microtubules, and it's able to transiently couple onto them. It's also a tension sensing system. It's able to feel when the cell is ready, when, when the chromosome is correctly positioned. It's turning green here because it, it feels that everything is just right. And you'll see that there's one little last bit that's still remaining red. And it's walked away down the microtubules. That is the signal broadcasting system sending out the stop signal. And it's walked away. I mean, it's that mechanical. It's molecular clockwork. This is how you work at the molecular scale. So with a little bit of molecular eye candy, um, we've got kinesins, which are the orange ones. They're little uh, molecular courier molecules walking one way. And here are the dynein. They're carrying that broadcasting system. And they've got their long legs so they can step around obstacles and so on. So again, this is all derived accurately from the science. The problem is we can't show it to you any other way. So guys, this is so cool that all of these little, there's thousands of types of these molecular machines found within the trillions of cells within your and my bodies. And the code for those machines in order for right, replication and transcription of DNA, the code for making those machines is found within the information of the DNA that it, it itself. So those machines can exist without the DNA, but the DNA can't be duplicated or transcribed or read or those proteins created without the machines themselves. So you end up having this chicken and egg scenario that it's only going to ever make sense if these systems were designed together. If these systems were designed together. So this is, this is tremendous, that the more that science discovers about our universe, about life, about the information contained within it, about the irreducible complexity of machines like this, where that if you took about away one of the parts of that machine, it wouldn't function at like 80% capacity or 50% capacity. It would break down completely. It only exists if all, say, 40 parts in a bacterial flagellum exist simultaneously. So you don't have this gradual progression of which you could get to that type of machinery unless all of them simultaneously came in to existence. All right, that we, as we see these things, we see evidence of a mind, evidence of a mind within some of our own generation, right? The universe was once thought to be this steady state, that it existed forever. But within some of our own generation, it's been discovered that it had a beginning, that it was not infinite in time. Right? And if it had this beginning, then it surely had a cause. The universe has been found to be so finely tuned for life that there's all of these factors as far as gravity and the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. There's hundreds of factors that are finely tuned within thousandths of a degree that if you change one of them ever so slightly, right, that it, the universe would not exist. Life could not exist. And so scientists, as they've realized this, they're like, man, our universe just doesn't make sense. It shouldn't exist. It shouldn't exist as it does. And the only thing they've been able to posit is that if this all happened by happenstance, if this all happened by chance, how do you reduce the probability of someone winning the lottery millions and millions and millions of time, times, right? You have to try to create a greater number of chances that they attempted to be able to reduce those infinitesimal probabilities. And so what they've posited is this unseen, unscientific, never-to-be-observed, and never-will-be-observed solution, in which they say, instead of maybe just our universe, maybe there's the multiverse. 
Maybe there's infinitely many universes and we just happen to be the lucky one that, that won the lottery the millions and millions and millions of times. And that's the only explanation they have to right, explain how we exist, why this universe is here, never mind the probabilities of life beginning or the probabilities of life turning into another life, right? That instead of in, in our generation, yeah, we're not worshiping a bird or a lizard, right? We're not worshiping those things, but we have this incredible faith in our generation to believe that creation created itself. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. In, in fact, evolution made sense for a little while. It was, it was like a magician on a stage that when you're watching from far away, it's like, okay, he's kind of got an explanation for how he cut that lady in half. Okay, it was magic. That was his explanation. But upon closer investigation, all right, it, it doesn't make sense. We've realized, wait a minute, his explanation doesn't work. This is just a parlor trick. That the same doubts that Darwin had when he first posited his theory have increased in magnitude. All right, that back in his day, he thought a cell was just a little glob of jelly. And he's like, yeah, those things probably got together and then bam, an eyeball, right? But now we know that they're full of information, specified information, functional information. All right, we know that it's far more than just, right, a collision of atoms over a long time that happened to arrange in these patterns. Right, that is, that he hoped that the fossil record, that further discoveries would have actually, you know, brought justification to his theory. But since then, those fossils have not been found. That the patterns show these steady states, these long steady states of organisms. We don't see this gradual change over time. Which is why the scientist Stephen Jay Gould, right, who's not a creationist or anything like that, right, but he posited, well, maybe it's this punctuated equilibrium. Maybe things stay same for the long time and then suddenly, boop, there's a lucky monster that just happened to get all of the mutations simultaneously and turned into a completely new species or animal, right? Like this is the sort of faith that you have to have to believe in these sorts of things. But the, the closer we look at these just so stories, we realize that all of this hand waving is this distraction that it doesn't actually communicate the things that we observe. So much so, in fact, that in 2016, November of a couple, couple Novembers ago, the Royal Society in England, the most prestigious scientific community that has once been chaired by Isaac Newton himself, okay, that they met to talk about the problems with neo-Darwinian theory. Because they all agreed, what they all were getting together like, so we all agree this doesn't work, right guys? Like, we all agree that it's got to be revamped because it doesn't explain the evidence that we're seeing. That when, they all, when all the magicians got together, none of them believe in the magic, right? And they each posited maybe a different idea of like, well, maybe it was this. Maybe it was the RNA world hypothesis. Maybe it was this way. Maybe it was just a law-like pattern that resulted in all of these things happening. And so as each of these guys would suggest a different theory, it would be picked to death by all of the other scientists in the room because it would only communicate or solve a small problem but is insufficient at solving all of the rest. And so they don't, they don't have a common theory anymore. It's falling apart, right? That as we look within the things that are made, it points to God. The only known source, all right, applying to scientific reasoning, historical science, you look at the things that produce a particular outcome in the present, and then you apply that to the past. 
And the only known source that has ever been observed to create information that is specified, that is functional at this magnitude, is a mind, is an intelligence. It's the only known source. Books don't just fall out of nowhere, all right? You can't just make an explosion at a printing press and get like Harry Potter, right? Like that doesn't work. That's, that's magic, right? It points to the fact that God exists. It points to the fact that God exists. Back to Romans 20, verse 21, or 1, verse 21. It says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. All right, people come up with all sorts of thoughts. They want to make God in their own image rather than us be made in his. Right, a whole bunch of people can come up with ideas of what he's like, but God is not some amoeba that conforms to what you and I want him to be because he's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in his word, through his prophets, and most recently through his son, who is the image of the invisible God, who shows us exactly what he's like. So we can't just like change Jesus into something else because we don't like who he is. All right, it says, as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. Let's put the graphic up from the Bible Project's video there. Right, where we see that humans, that when we think something will make us wise, right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they looked upon it and they, it, they, it was desired because they thought it would make one wise. But as a result, all of humanity, as we decide to live our own way, we make foolish choices over and over and over again. And God invites us into truth. He invites us into wisdom. He invites us into relationship with himself. See verse 23. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and animals, right, birds and reptiles. Verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile things, right, degrading things with each other's bodies. Right? The most common religion in our day is the one in which each of us is our own God. Right? Where we're just doing the things that we want to do. Right? That we desire to do. But you and I are terrible, terrible at being God. Verse 25, it says, They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things that God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Let's have the worship team come on back up. Or actually, it's just Rennell. Thank you, though. Oh, man. Sorry, Chanel. Our other worship leader is Rennell. Their name's Rhyme. My apologies. So, so God is magnificent. God is wonderful. He's made you. He's made me. You aren't some cosmic accident, some jumble of molecules over the existence of the universe, right? You were made for a purpose. And since you and I were made, we, we have a God who designed us and has a plan and a purpose for our lives. He wants to see humanity flourish, right? He wants to see us thrive. He wants to see the gifts that he has placed in each of you come to fruition, something to be enjoyed, by other people. 
right? God wants to be with you and me forever. But he's looking for a commitment, faithfulness, loyalty to him. And I realize that's not something that you and I really were looking for, right? We're not looking for, we're not interested in a God relationship with someone else where they get to tell us what's right and wrong. But it turns out the wisest thing that we can do is to trust the one who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves, right? The one who loves us even when we don't love ourselves, the one who forgives us even when we don't want to forgive ourselves. God loves you. God wants to be with you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the world that you have made for us to enjoy. We ask, God, that you would reveal your heart and your love to us, that, God, that that those of us who are, are seeking, those who are unsure, those who are not quite ready to commit, Lord, that you would reveal yourself as real and as true and as someone who we can trust, that, Lord, we would place you in the place where only you belong, as God of all creation, as God of all the earth, as God of all of our lives that we, like Jesus, would be able to say, not our will, but your will be done. We pray this and thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen.